0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized Good morning, Uh, uh, just wanted to remind you again that we haven't had like fellowship in a while and so we are gonna try to start it up after Easter. Uh, This is why we're asking that you RSVP, we're going to hope that it'll be like good weather. Uh, Historically, we looked at like the years past and around this time, it should be in like the upper 50s by Easter, so we'll sit outside and You know, we'll stay separated, but this is why we need you to RSVP, but um, we do ask that you keep this in prayer so that we can really have a celebration after Easter together. Um, And so as we begin today's sermon, let's start with a prayer. God, our helper by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Starting from the beginning of this chapter, Paul started to take up issues. So he started to take up issues with the Corinthians. And the Corinthian the people in the Corinthians didn't necessarily ask him about it, like we saw in the previous chapters, but he started to initiate and take up these issues. The first one was on how men and women were to conduct themselves in the public gathering. When he started, he said that, if you remember that he commended the Corinthian church with keeping their traditions, or doctrines that Paul had given them. This time, however, he does not commend them. This time, it's seriously bad, right? So we begin in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So gathering together is a command, It's most notably expressed in Hebrews 10.25 where we are commanded not to neglect meeting together. Meeting together encourages others. Meeting together encourages your pastor, encourages your elders, and also encourages you. Meeting together encourages all of us. Not physically gathering hurts you. This is even a more interesting time now to reflect on passages like these because of the danger and fear of the illness out there. Regardless, this truth holds. When you don't gather, your spirit suffers. When you do gather, God has designed it so that we would be encouraged. There is an assuring of faith There is a cleansing of the heart from an evil conscience and subsequently a cleansing of our bodies as well. Together we hold fast to the confessions of our hope, placing our trust in the one who gave us the promise. We stir one another up to good works and love, preparing ourselves for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything that I just said, was just from four verses in Hebrews chapter 10. I would imagine if we took the time, this list would be much longer. We do have online capabilities for our weaker brothers and sisters, and when the rest are physically able through various means of preventative measures or vaccin- vaccinations, I believe there will be an exaltation. That means great rejoicing when we all can meet together at the table again. So establishing the importance of gathering is especially important in understanding this particular passage. Because here, Paul is saying gathering together is actually worse for you Corinthians, right? To hear it in context would have maybe had like the response be something more like, If you heard this and you understood the importance of gathering, you might be like, well, that's a a little extreme, right? You mean gathering is worse for us? Christians were persecuted. They were stoned. They were whipped. They were chased out. They were killed. And yet, even under the threat of this profound persecution, what did they not stop doing gathering together but paul is saying that when you guys get together it's actually worse so the setup here is important what could they have been possibly been doing for paul to have said this this section from verse 17 all the way to verse 34 is a critical part of the new testament it deals with communion or the lord's table If you've been attending church for even a short amount of time, you know that there are two sacraments that the church holds. Sacrament means a holy ordinance. It's holy because this is what the Lord both commanded and instituted with the example of both set by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we hold to these two ordinances very dearly and we put such a high priority on baptism and communion i would think that we should feel so strongly about these two ordinances that if anyone else doesn't we should com- we should question their commitment and obedience to the faith if they have not been obedient in these two areas and that's my challenge that we should give to one another if The church, historically, has felt so strongly, so deeply, has prioritized it. It's such a great level, these two sacraments. We should question even ourselves of our commitment to the obedience and faith if we are not obedient in these two areas. Perhaps it may be easier for us to obey and participate, but not really particularly struggle when it comes to baptism. The Lord said to do it, so we just do it. Sometimes we could struggle with obeying the Lord's commands. Sometimes there are difficult portions in the Scriptures for us to ponder and reflect on. But when it comes to baptism, I would say the vast majority do not necessarily struggle with it unless you're struggling with your faith. Then that's another story. People of faith get baptized. Now the question of us struggling with communion then is also an interesting one. For one thing, communion is a vital part of the Christian life. You cannot miss communion. You can't ignore communion. It's not just an add-on to a service once a month. It's not a ceremonial ritual. It's something that is to be weaved into the life of the believer. So in terms of us struggling with communion, before you answer that, let's go into some context and issues that the church in Corinth faced. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses many issues that the church faced. But it was more than just issues. They were more like abuses. They abused their freedoms with their leaders. Remember, I am, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. They abused their discipline. We had a man in bed with his father's wife, and they not only not disciplined him, they were arrogant, it says. They were reveling in it. They sued one another. They married whomever and whatever they whenever they wanted, and the list goes on. One of the abuses that we'll see this morning is the way they had perverted communion. The Lord's table was turned into a drunken feast. This is the issue that Paul will write about from verses 17 to 34. Granted, I'm only going to do half. And Pastor Paul will take the rest in the following week. But the Apostle Paul is very upset. How upset is he? He uses, in particular, very strong language and even points to people dying and getting sick because they abused the Lord's table. Some died, others are sick, and so they had better do something to turn this ship around because it's about to hit a bunch of rocks. What's so important about the Lord's Supper? You see, on the night before Jesus' death, he gathered his disciples in the upper room and he had the Passover meal with them. We went over this in Matthew. We went over this in Exodus. But as a Jew, you had to meet in person and you had to meet in Jerusalem to eat the meal. The Passover was a special meal designed by God to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, and they were to remember this. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for over 400 years. God would choose Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. That's a land flowing with milk and honey, a term to signify abundant riches. To do this, God used plagues to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians for, from prohibiting the Israelites from leaving to worship God. When the final plague hit, and the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, this is including the animals, the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, including the animals, died, Pharaoh told them, go get out get out of here. Since then, all throughout Jewish history, annually, the Jews would hold the Passover meal as a remembrance of God's mighty hand delivering them from their enemy. And we know that this goes on still today. But on the night before Jesus' death, Jesus took this meal this particular meal, the meal that God had instituted and that the Jews had followed for thousands of years and transformed and transitioned it into a new meal. He was effectively saying this, the Passover meal where you had the firstborn die for your deliverance from Egypt really pointed to my death, my death for your deliverance of your sin. He would take the bread from that meal, and this was his body given for us. He would take the cup from the meal, and that was his blood shed for us. And he would say, do these things in remembrance of me. Now the people of God don't go back to Egypt to remember God's salvation. We go back to Calvary. We go back to Jesus the people of the Old Testament would look forward even when looking back on the Passover meal. And now the people of the New Covenant look back to Christ's death and resurrection while looking forward to his second coming when we take communion. This was one of the key and defining acts that the disciples of Christ did when they joined the church In Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's noted that they devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. To the apostles' teaching, that's doctrines and traditions. This is why the early church was unified And this is what they were unified in. Doctrine. Koinonia, which is translated to fellowship. It's a deep fellowship with other believers. And this is what we call today ministry. The breaking of the bread. It's more than just a common meal. Communion was incorporated into this. And the prayers. Prayers are not just the ad hoc prayers, but the prayer implies that they were prepared and regularly confessed. This is why they gathered. It's impossible to do these things without gathering. Someone called me recently and asked me why I thought it was imperative for our church to meet. This person doesn't attend our church, and so they were confused as to why I made it such a priority when the church that they attended did not. I was asked the question, did I not care about the elderly and the immunocompromised? I assured them in my phone call that I was. In fact, I do also have aged parents with one that is immunocompromised that actually attend this church that's watching this right now. However, the word of God is clear. Meeting is a priority unless your life is literally hanging in the balance, why would you neglect this command to meet? And can you say to me that your spiritual life has grown and matured while you simply did an online service? You know why I know the answer is no? Because I see clear principles laid out for us that we are to take seriously. For a time, we couldn't meet. For a time, it was Dangerous, we had no idea what was going on, so we wanted to take care of our neighbors. And so we, in fact, did close our doors and we did a solely online service because we didn't want our neighbors to potentially suffer from something we didn't know much about. Now, as of March 12th, that's just a few days ago, we've had 532,000 people die of COVID. And this is out of the 29.35 million cases, positive cases reported. And mind you, these are cases reported. Uh, No one is denying that if you get a case, if you test positive, it won't hurt. I'm not denying that, that if you are symptomatic, this is going to be painful for a lot of people. But if we're purely looking on numbers, which in my humble opinion is Far more conservative in the positive cases that are, that have been reported. I mean, I look at um, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, and my brother-in-law. They all tested positive for COVID about a year ago. They suffered really badly. My mother-in-law had to be hospitalized, and there was no room in the emergency room. Uh, they put her in the hallway, and they gave her some oxygen in the hallway on a couch because there were there were no beds and so there was uh, quite the scare that we were praying through but my father-in-law and brother-in-law also had it but they just sent them home they wouldn't even test them and so those are things that we have gone through for in the last year uh, i do believe we have gotten much much better and i praise god for that our therapeutics are better You know, we have vaccines now. And so it's it's a much more hopeful state that we're in. Uh, But even if you included that time, when it was really bad, we have a death rate from the reported positive cases of less than 2%. It comes out to like, if you do the division, it comes out to like 1.8%. And that's not counting the chances of you contradicting COVID in the first place. Immediately when I share this with people, some people think that I'm not taking COVID seriously. And I would respectfully disagree. I disagree. I think I take it more seriously than those people. Taking it seriously would be to put COVID on the scales of danger, assessing the risks, taking the necessary precautions, and then living out your life prioritizing what is most necessary. That's the question. What is most necessary for you to live? And so breaking bread was a fellowship meal that the people in the ancient world held dear, and I'm convinced that with the other scholars and historians of this period that communion was also involved. This was a priority for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have added this to Acts 2.42, grouping it with all the other acts. How is breaking bread than any... Like, holy, as holy as the doctrines, the prayers, the koinonia. But it is, because communion was happening on a regular basis in the church, and it was a defining act for them. Now, it seems as though they had this meal regularly. Uh, When Peter preached at Pentecost, we had people from all over the world hear the message. They will repent. They will get baptized. And then what? And then what? They were added to the number. What does that mean? Put two and two together. That means they didn't go back home. They were all from all over the world. They heard the message. They repented. They were baptized. And they didn't go home because they were added to the number. That means they stayed with the disciples. This is why they even needed to add deacons just a few chapters later. Because of this, the Christians who had something, just two verses later says, the Christians who had something would sell all their belongings so that they could support this incredible influx of new believers. Not only men and women were, being sa- were they being saved, but slaves were being saved. The rich being saved right alongside the poor. There is an incredible significance to what they did when they comm- commemorated communion. What the world had previously set apart, we see Christ join together. They started to eat in each other's houses. And when you eat together, you naturally share life together. Who are you closest with? Probably the people that you eat with. And this is how it all started. By the time you get to Acts 20 or so, we see more of a formal gathering take place. On the first day of the week, it says in Acts 20, which is a Sunday, right? They would break bread and then hear the sermon from Paul. Apparently, they did the communion first, right? And you might be thinking, wow, this is, why don't we do the communion first? And this, is, this is really interesting because I figure they ate first because Paul's sermons were probably so long. Uh, they would gather really early in the day. Some would say even at the break of dawn, they would gather right when their sun up, right? And they would listen to the sermon until the evening. That's not a one-hour sermon. That's a very long sermon. They would go all the way to the evening. That's why they had to gather into the room where there were lamps, right? Because it would go all the way past sundown. Uh, a young man would fall asleep. It's recorded, and he would fall out the window because he was sitting by the window. And I feel bad for this young man. What a poor guy. He probably stayed by the window because he wanted to stay awake. He's like, I can't stay awake for 17 hours. This is, this is, this is pushing me to the limits. 14 hours, maybe I could do it, right? 17, that's a little rough. So he, he goes by the window to stay awake. He falls out the window. Paul goes down, revives him, and he's alive again, okay? Then what did they do? What did they do? What did Paul do? He continues preaching. And so he continues preaching all the way until when? Until sun up. Until the sun comes back up, he starts preaching. That's almost 24 hours of preaching that they heard. But the pattern that we see here is a common meal that is shared. I'm not saying that we're gonna have 24 hours of preaching. I can't even last like an hour. Uh, My voice starts to die after 30. But the pattern that we see, we're seeing here is that there is a common meal that is shared and the communion was probably attached to the meal and it was attached to worship. It was attached to listening to the word of God proclaimed. We know that this is probably the case in Corinth as well then. But the communion that followed the meal or the meal itself, what they would call it was they would call it the agape. They would call this a love feast. This is a cultural thing. This is what they started to do back in the ancient world. They would call it a love feast and probably would have the communion after. So this love feast or the agape feast would then start to turn soon. It would start to turn into this drunken, self-serving, worldly exercise. And to think that the communion would be incorporated into this. It made God furious. That's not what communion is about. And by doing this agape feast, they were making a mockery of the Lord's table. Like in the beginning after Pentecost, the rich or the able would bring the food, sort of like a potluck. But instead of sharing their meals, they would use it for self-serving purposes. You see, Christianity... Especially exercised in the Lord's Supper, Christianity fantastically broke down all these worldly barriers between races, classes, cultures. But now you see, only after twenty some odd years after Jesus institutes it, people are desecrating it. No wonder God is furious. In verse eighteen, for in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. First of all, you don't create more divisions when you come together as a church. Christ has obliterated them so that you could be united as one in Christ like harmony. But when the Corinthians and the church got together, there were divisions. You can't have communion with worldly divisions. He says this because he believed that there has to be factions anyway to recognize the genuine. So he's like, I do believe that when I hear that there are factions, it's just inevitable. There should be factions. But look, there's no worldly divisions at Christ's table. Christ joins the rich and poor, the master, the slave, men and women, all races of the world together. There is a, however, there is a spiritual separation between genuine believers and non-believers, the wheat and the tares, people who have committed and people who are just coming for fellowship or just to eat, members of the church and non-members. There obviously needs to be that distinction. This is what he recognizes. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he means by there are those that are there are those that are genuine not only that but there also needs to be a distinction between mature and babies paul uses the word dokimoi here for genuine this is also used in 1st thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 where this person this dokimoi is a person approved by god that means this person is tested not anyone can be an officer of the church and there must be a distinction made You might think, is this common sense? Probably. But I've seen too many infant Christians complain about officers in the church because they think they know better. A good church, a good church will distinguish them so that they don't cause a ruckus in the house. The baby in the house does not determine the priorities in the house. Otherwise, the house would be in ruins. And while the parents of a newborn baby may adjust their schedules for a time to help the baby, it's for the purpose of directing their growth so that the baby too will understand what it means to be mature one day. You don't adjust your schedule to your kids for the rest of your life. That is insanity. It's only for a time until you can have them adjust properly to yours. Because as their parents, you do know what's good for them. Sleeping at 3 p.m. and waking up at 3 a.m. is not a schedule that mature people can live on. This is why a person is given a responsibility as a deacon or elder, but first they must be approved. One way you can tell if a person has been tested is that they have been through rough times in the church and they remain steady. The boat was rocking and they didn't go knocking on another church door. Not only that, but you also get to see how a person handles adversity through the tough times, times of disagreements, problems, when a tough doctrine comes along. How do they handle that Those people that throw tantrums and continue to disrupt, not an officer. If an officer does that, disciplined. You would rather then see the person of distinction, these people that are mature, they would fight for unity. If you're new to this church, know that there is a distinction between you and an officer. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. But this is not the distinction that Paul is seeing. They were having this agape love feast, and the rich would get there earlier. Earlier. They probably had better mediums of communication. They had the newer iPhones, so they got the message quicker. It wasn't the green bubble. It was like, ugh, right? So they would get there, and they would eat all the food, and by the time the poor people got there, green bubble, oh, disgusting, right? But by the time the poor people would get there, all the food would be gone. So one goes home hungry, and the other is drunk You cannot call this the Lord's Supper. This is a desecration of the Lord's table. It is blasphemous. You can't treat others that the Lord has called your brothers and sisters as a lesser citizen of the kingdom of God. Yes, meeting together is a command of God. But meeting together in the name of Christ and doing the very opposite of what he wants is blasphemous. You can't gather in Jesus' name and then do whatever you want. You can't say things like, as long as I'm entertained, then isn't this a good church? As long as it gives good jokes, I'm okay with that. You can't have any element in worship that you want as a priority and then expect God to be pleased. Saying things like, you know, if we added all these cool features And we have fun with it. I mean, if we have fun in worship, that's worship, right? That's worship. Because God wants us to be happy in the end. What a twisted, amoral, and dead conscience. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The infinitive used here in the Greek would have sounded more to the effect of, it's inconceivable that you think that this is the Lord's Supper You got it wrong because you eat your own food. You don't share. You get full while someone else who barely makes it goes home hungry. How can you make the Lord's table a place where you antagonize each other, fight each other, hate each other? How can you honestly break the one bread and live out the saying that this body was given for all of you? You're not a one bread family. You've actually turned it into something polar opposite for what it was designed. You are destroying the meaning behind the Lord's Supper. Verse 22 What? I love the way Junzag read it, so I'm going to do the same. What? Right? Do you have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You can tell Paul is infuriated here as well. People could be thinking, but Paul, I'm a hungry guy. I just have a big appetite. You can't blame me for that. And he would go, what? Right? If you're hungry, eat at home. But when you come together in the church of God, what are you here to do? You're not here to just satisfy your own appetite. You're here to lift up the other person, lift up the one that is hungry. By leaving the poor Christians with nothing to eat, that they go back hungry is to humiliate them. And that's exactly what was happening. Maybe they were purposefully humiliating the poor in the church, and they would have had the audacity then to ask for praise. The rich and poor can commune together in the church. The rich and poor are to commune together in the church. How have you shown that? The distinction between rich and poor back in the ancient world wasn't just simply people with higher incomes or people with a disposable income versus someone who's living, you know, just paycheck to paycheck. That's not what we mean by rich and poor. The income differentiation that we talk about is a relatively new phenomenon, saying, oh, you make 45K, oh, I make 60K, oh, I make 120K, and then above you would say, oh, I'd rather not say, right? That kind of thing. The distinction between rich and poor was more than that. It was about ownership. It was about family name versus someone with no family name. It was about someone that was educated versus someone that was uneducated. It was about someone that was cultured versus someone that was uncultured. It was about freedmen and it was about versus slaves. It was about a lot of things. And that's what people thought. It's just nature. It's just natural, isn't it? Uh, this is what we do in life. Um, we have two elders in our church, which I am uh, profoundly proud of because they play football well, right? And I see Christ represented in them. <laughs> anyway, they, they, so if you've never played football, um, you probably won't get exactly the things that they are probably used to. If you don't know who they are, obviously I'm talking about Jubin and Pastor Paul. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so I'm just kidding. Obviously I'm kidding. Okay. Okay. Um, when you play football, when you go into any kind of uh, athletic competition, there is something that happens when you meet someone on the football field. Um, there is a pre-game psychological warfare that happens. Whether you know it or not, whether I'm stating this to you, and then you're like, I didn't know that. It doesn't matter if you knew or didn't know, this is what happens. And this is what we commonly call sizing each other up, okay? Sizing each other up, this is what all of nature does. You know, my friend had a uh, Doberman growing up, and this Doberman was uh, just introduced to the family when it was fully grown. So when my friend, he was just a little kid, would go and meet the Doberman, the Doberman immediately got up in its hind legs, put its front legs on top of my friend's shoulders because the Doberman was sizing him up. This is a nature thing. It's natural. So when people go out onto the football field, it starts with the initial meet. So look in the eye if you look at Sung and Ho Young their eyes are different before the football game their hellos to you are different they don't hello to you like they do hello here right it's a little different right And this is because they're preparing themselves for the battle sort so to speak now if you've never been in any kind of that kind of athletic competition where you're actually physically competing with each competing with each other you don't know this you think that you're a Superman. You've watched a lot of anime. You think that you could crush anybody because you could bench press whatever weight you want. Uh, this is not true. I don't care if you could bench press a million pounds. The football field is different, right? And so these are things that in experience you would get to notice. Um, many of you have played football, so you know exactly what I am talking about. Now we could say that that's nature. You size people up you can't really blame the Corinthians. Some of you are reading this as like, these, these guys are terrible, and these are, blah, right? But this is exactly what we do all the time. I'm just taking a silly example because this is what you do naturally. You do size people up. As soon as they come into the room, you size people up. As soon as you hit the field, you size people up. As soon as you go into the office, you size people up. This is what people do. This is a nature thing. But this is what they were doing in the church And so when you size people up, what are you really doing? You're seeing if they are capable as you. You're seeing if they're as athletic as you, strong as you, intelligent as you, as talented as you, and you're sizing people up so that you have this order that's set up, a pecking order, if you may. But this is not how it happens in the church. When you see another person in the church, who do you now see? That's the question. Who do you see when you see a brother or sister, a member of the church? Who do you see? You see Christ. And if you see Christ and you're sizing up Christ, you will get crushed. Imagine looking down on Christ. He would crush you. But the point is that these things, you would say they are natural, but they are secular divisions. We in Christ's kingdom, we don't divide people this way. Just because you went to MIT, I'm picking on MIT because it's my favorite uh, university in the world. I think all the nerds go there, so I love it. I think it's the best place in the world. But anyway, just because you went to MIT doesn't make you better. After I said all that, right? Uh, Just because you went to MIT doesn't make you better than someone who couldn't go to college. That's the point. Whatever the worldly distinction you have, you come to church and the barriers are broken down. No one is treated like a second-class citizen here in this place. That's why when you come to the table, you cannot come to the table with racist feelings. You cannot come to the table with sexist feelings. You cannot come to the table with lustful feelings, with classist feelings, with selfish feelings, with uncaring feelings. Our fellowship must be pure because the one who instituted it is pure and wants us to follow in his footsteps. This is a high calling that we've been called to. We are not to pervert it as the Corinthian church did. We do not fall into the classism of the world. When Christ took the bread and broke it, took the cup and poured it, he gave it to his disciples saying, eat, this is my body given for you, Drink, this is my blood shed for you. This is something that unites us in what is deeper, stronger, and more preserving than anything else in this world. This is what we've been given to remember what Christ has done for us. Then let us live according to what we see here. Seeing Christ in others and doing what he teaches us to do, loving one another As he has loved us. Let us then live according to what we see here in the scriptures, seeing Christ in others and doing what he teaches us to do, loving one another as he has loved us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that is given, the hope that you give us in Christ, the strength that you give us by the Holy Spirit. And so now we come to you with a humble and broken and contrite heart. Asking for forgiveness of the times where we actually brought the world inside instead of living by what you have designed and designated in this church, your body. Help us to live according to your scriptures, your word now, seeing Christ in others and loving one another as you have loved us. Let's take this time to pray and confess to the Lord where we have actually desecrated the table ourselves when we didn't think or follow in his ways and do the things that he has commanded us. But let's also pray that the Spirit of God would give us strength and power to live according to what he has dictated, according to what is truly love, according to what is truly good and pure. Let's pray.